Hi, I'm Simon Talbot. And I'm Wendy Dean. And this is Moral Matters. J. Stephen Bowen is Executive Vice Chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital. He's also Assistant Professor at the Harvard Medical School. We spoke with Dr. Bowen about his studies of emergency departments, namely the established and growing problems of overcrowding and hallway boarding, what's driving these trends, how they reflect the general state of healthcare systems, and what some possible solutions might be. Let's have a listen. Dr. Steve Bohan, thank you so much for joining us today. It's really both an honor and a pleasure to have you here as somebody that has worked at my hospital for a lot longer than I've been here. We started out becoming interested in your work because of some work that you had originally written on the topic of orders in the ED. And I have to say that as somebody who doesn't work in the ED, I've heard this from a number of people and it wasn't something that was obvious to me was as big a problem as it clearly is. Could you start out by giving us a little of your background and then we'll switch into the the discussion of borders? Uh, I uh, went to medical school to avoid being abducted uh, for Vietnam. And when I finished medical school, the war was still on, which wasn't on the script. And uh, so I actually joined the Navy at that time to sort of protect my uh, where I would end up. I ended up sitting uh, 20 years in the Navy as a general internist. But about halfway through my career, I did a lot of moonlighting um, in emergency departments. I had four children in schools, blah, blah, blah. And um, I realized that I was really interested in the diagnosis. And then I would, uh, took a couple uh, years after that till I realized the diagnosis was moving to the emergency department and away from the hospital floor. And so that combined with the thing I migrated uh, about uh, in 1993, I migrated to emergency medicine. And I have not regretted it for one day or one hour. Best job in the world. That's great. Well, as I mentioned earlier, the thing that brought us together, the thing that got us talking on the topic of healthcare, was this issue of borders in the emergency room. Can you expand a little bit, particularly for our non-emergency room physicians and clinicians who might be listening about what the problem is and and where it stems from? Well, first of all, it's not a new problem. In uh, 2007, which is 13 years before COVID, the Institute of Medicine in Washington, a pretty big organization, an influential organization, um, had a uh, publication that talked about emergency medicine being at the breaking point. That was in 2007. Nothing has changed. (laughs) Certainly not in a good direction in that. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the population has grown in general, and um, the demand for medical services in general has gotten enormous. And uh, as anybody knows, if you try to get an appointment with a doctor, it's not easy, and people always talk to months rather than days or weeks. Um, and if you, if you look at the comments section in the New York Times, they tell people, say, oh, I can't find a doctor. And other commentators say, just go to the emergency bar, but they have to see you, which is true. There's a law. You have to be seen. And uh, the combination of the, uh, the complexity of uh, med- medicine, the growing population, are all contributory. 
but most contributory in, in the piece that was uh, on uh, 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 STAT uh, website is that people have forgotten that people live longer now. That's one. Um, but secondly, there with the population dynamics in the United States, and people talk about the baby boom. If people go, people go to the emergency, 150 million visits a year to emergency apartments every year. 150 million, it's really a lot. Wow, yeah, it's huge. Yeah, and it, the visit rate is about 45. There are 45, in general, visits per 100 people. That, that varies with age. And although it hovers in, in, the, in the adolescent and adult world, it hovers around the 38s and 42s. Uh, thing. But when people are older, when they're 75, there's an abrupt change uh, for things. And no, but that's not a surprise. The surprise is that the baby boomers are just coming into the 75-year bracket, just in the past year. Mm-hmm. 2021, it, it's the first, the 1946. <laughs> but the, uh, the baby boom continued. For, uh, to 1964, and if you look at uh, graphic data, the, the bar for people getting to the getting to age 75 is bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until it gets to 1960, until uh, it gets to 2039. And so we have problems now. We have problems in 2007. We have problems now. Nobody has ever conceived of the problems that are lying out there. It's simple, supply and demand. <clears throat> when people get to age 75, they come to the emergency department frequently, more frequently. When they get there, they stay longer in the department because they're older and have more complexity. They get admitted more commonly. I'm fond of saying that your chance of getting admitted in the emergency department is your age. <laughs> Boy, that's, that's, that's actually very accurate. I like that. <laughs> it is. It really is. So 70%, if you're 75, the 75%. If you're, we don't send 100 people 100 home for anything. They, they, they yeah. die frequently. That might be the day after we saw them, right? That, that's just the yeah. case. <laughs> and so with this pressure on the emergency department, obviously there are some run-on effects of that. And you and I have talked about the effect on patient care of this pressure on the emergency room. There are challenges for patients and there are challenges for physicians and there are challenges for all the other clinicians working in the emergency room. Can you expand on what those what those are and how this pressure on the emergency room affects patient care? There are good studies and the data is that boarding, and boarding is defined by the patient is to be admitted, admitted on the computer, but waits more than four hours to get upstairs. There's a, an important article in the New England Journal in September of last year that begs that for that that, that um, point to be two hours, <laughs> because that those extra two hours that we're giving people just pie, increases the pile. It, it just gets bigger. And the the Adverse effects of this are really well studied. And I'm just going to go through a few. 10-day mortality is 10-day mortality in the war, whether you were discharged, 10-day mortality is higher in borders. 
people who are um, diverted to ambulance. The ambulance is diverted to another place. They die, the people, those people die more frequently. People who need an ICU bed and are sitting in another hospital, when they get, they die more frequently. These are good, good studies. The one something that we mentioned in a previous conversation, Simon, is that when they get there and they're in the hallway, that makes the whole place completely crowded because new patients coming in have nowhere to go. When the new patients come in, you, you have to see them. You do a history and physical. But how do you do a proper history and physical in, a, in the hallway? You can't. We actually studied that and found out that 100% of emergency physicians in their, in their career have deviated from the proper history and physical because the patient was in the hallway. 100%. Which, which that, that means the patient suffers because they didn't get a good H&P, and the doctor suffers because they know they didn't get it. They weren't able to provide it, and it's structural. It's, they're, they're not neglectful. They're not people undermining them. It's structural. So what, uh, what can we do about this? Um, not much. The, uh, we can find another nurse, and that nurse can take care of patients in the hallway. But then if, that, if the patients need drugs, they go to the drug dispensing machine, but they have to stand in line. And here's the nurse standing in line, because if they leave, then somebody else is going, another nurse is going to get in line for, for to get their drugs. And when you put two more than one person at the drug dispensing station, you get mistakes. It just happens. It makes up. And that's, that's we had a, a disastrous case in that. And the, if you look at the violence against the staff, when that distance, when you when there's um, disarray in the emergency department by people in the hallway and people rushing and people bumping into each other, that's, that's kind of a mini mayhem. There's mayhem. And mayhem promotes violence. It, it really does. And, and there's good data that people in the emergency department a uh, long time are more violent than, than not. And so the staff is under, under uh, really stress. <laughs> You can see it when they come for their shift. They come into the door, they look around, and their shoulders drop. Because they know it's not good from the start. And if it's not good from the start, it's certainly going to get worse. You know, Steve, the concept of mayhem is such a palpable concept. I don't think anybody has ever been to an emergency department and had the sense of calm and peacefulness. And that idea of mayhem as both a stress for the provider and the patient, I think, is is just so palpable and has clearly gotten more extreme over the years. It has. It has. And you know, I think that some of the staff, by just talking to people, um, people are coming to the conclusion and saying, I don't need this. <laughs> you know, the, the employment market, they're... they're there are many, many more jobs than people out there, and the employment market is lucrative. 
and you have that in face. So people, why, why should they, why do they be subject to mayhem every day they come to work? <laughs> you think about it, you put it in words, it's really just silly. It's so, it's so bad. The other, but, it, but it's not strictly confined to the emergency department because when pace, these older patients get admitted often, they go upstairs. And upstairs they stay longer, which means there's no bed for, there's no bed for the next person coming in. And when you have a longer stay, and the stay is bed hours, how many patients are in a bed for how many hours, then, then the capacity is, gets reduced. So the capacity is reduced at every step. Because even in the, in the hospital, when there are patients, and they've stayed for five or eight days or whatever it is, now there's nowhere to get a portion of them out. There's no the nursing home beds are completely full, and so the discharge from the from the hospital itself is blocked. I think that's such a an interesting thought because what I hear a lot when I talk with hospitals who are looking for ways to help their staff, they'll talk about the overcrowding in the emergency room and talk about increasing efficiency on the floor so that throughput is better, but. I think it's a really salient point that you can only move people so fast and still do good care. And as people age, whether they're in the hospital because of an emergency visit or they're in the hospital because of an elective procedure, they may linger longer in care. And we need to maybe start building that into our expectations and our models. Yes. There's a constant battle in hospitals between the administration and the nurses. The nurses want to control their workflow, and the administrators want to control the nurses' workflow. And there's a tension there all the time. For instance, there is one, only one study to show that changes in behavior uh, can uh, alleviate the problems we were just talking about. And that is to take the mortar upstairs to the floor to which they will be assigned. The nurses on the floor hate this. They absolutely hate it. And an interesting fact is, if you institute that, the overall length of stay in the hospital falls. <laughs> the nurses hate that patient in the hallway, and they'll get another one out. And, and all that, for some, all this is human nature. It's human nature, but it's the only process change that has been shown to alleviate boarding. And when you alleviate boarding, you alleviate mistakes and poor outcomes. So that, that's a, a, an interesting thing. Finally, the other thing is the crowding really disrupts team dynamics. You, you know, you come to work every day, and there's me and Sally and Harry and, and Ed, and we, we sort of know what we all do and where we are and where we are in the patient. But once you add extra patients that the nurses can't keep up and they don't know, same, same thing with you, you go in the room and you go, oh, I forgot to, to check the, the uh, BUN on this patient, and then I'll go back. And there's the disruption. That's a little separate from the mayhem, which is physical. This one is intellectual and, and team dynamics. So the team crumbles like that, and everybody's sort of on their own and fighting for their own. That's, and that's really bad for care and uh, uh, 
well, we talk about burnout, such things. And it happens every day. At the, and there's a little bit, uh, in fact, uh, Simon, before you uh, joined us, we talked about uh, Berkshire Department design. Uh, and one of uh, you had a designer previously to talk. But the, the, and you say, the designer says, oh, how many patients are going to have? And you say X, Y, Z, and they design it, and they say, think this is the best. But then you have X, Y, Z plus A, B, C. You can have to turn, turn the corner. And the, the effect or the purpose of the design just dissolves. Because <laughs> there's this wonderful a colleague of mine runs a Bimomdides Hospital in Brooklyn, and he had a lot of patients, so he put a piece of tape down the middle of the cubicle and put a bed on either side. And that was, the until that was too bad, and then he put tape at the front and has a patient in the hallway right in front. And he said, the trouble here is from that Talmud says, seek seek light. And he said, but, yes, but not in my emergency department, please. <laughs> so, so, but that—that's just a, a, a thing. How things dissolve. Uh, my my thing is, I think we in the virtual department subsidize dysfunction. I think that's what we do. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. That sense of what I think is so difficult, and Danielle Offrey has written about this in the New York Times, that the willingness of healthcare workers to stretch themselves to make sure that their patients are taken care of at their own expense yeah. is really profound. And I think what I'm hearing more and more from, especially folks in the emergency room, but in much of healthcare is we're really teetering on the brink. What can we do about it? Well, first of all, we can put patients upstairs on the floor they're destined to be. But the number of hospital beds per capita in the United States used to be seven. There used to be about seven beds. It's now all two and a half beds per thousand people. And Norway has that. Germany has seven. But the point is, we need more hospital beds. Um, I'd just give an example of the recent migration uh, thing. Five million people have migrated to in the past 22 months into the United States, they need 8,000 hospital beds tomorrow. <laughs> They're not there. So maybe we can, uh, we can uh, talk about reducing the complexity of hospitals and build them quicker. What that reminds me of are all the community hospitals that we've shut down over the past decade. Yep. You did. 210 of them or something? Yes. And, you know, could we open those back up? What do we need to do to serve people in their communities? Well, you, you could certainly do that. Um, you could, uh, the hospitals now, of course, would, in addition to the complexities, have the complexity of infection control, which has grown out completely out of, out of uh, thing. So making new hospitals, I mentioned, it takes five, let me go back one step. It costs a million dollars to build one emergency department bed. It costs a million dollars to build one inpatient bed. It takes five years from the time you decide to do it. You'd say two years of planning and three years of building. 
and the expense now, that million dollars is pre-COVID. So it will be $1.5 million for everyone. The expense is phenomenal. So maybe we could build simpler hospitals. We've built tent hospitals. We use tent hospitals in COVID. They're very simple. They're outside, heaters and so forth. Then we could do something a little little better than that. Talk about home health care. But you can do it, but it's inefficient, terribly inefficient. You have to get in your car and drive to one place and then get in your car again to drive to some other place. So there's skilled worker driving all day between A, B, C, and D destinations. So it's not a thing. Then remote uh, home, yes, that's okay, but it's cumbersome. Uh, The five principles uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine article, uh, which we was written by five national authorities. They put out five principles. We need we need acknowledgement that this is really a serious problem. That's one. You need buy-in from senior level, executive CEO level of or healthcare organizations. You need regulators set uh, set. The regulators were the people who said four hours. But you need probably little less regulation. And they pointed out that, too, that the people in the hallway is no different from a disaster, right? That's what would happen in a disaster, right? You'd get people in the hallway, and it's a disaster every day. And say, it, they, they, the quote is, they, the, the, the response to the crowding needs the same moral response as a disaster, which is true which is true. Uh, They also talk about lowering standards a little bit. You know, we know that it's it's the perfect is possible, you know, the the tension between the perfect and the possible. So maybe we need to go a little less, be a little less perfect and uh, open more possibilities. So that's the, the cap on my thoughts about it. Finally, I just want to go back a little bit and said that when we talk about equity, I want to go back a little bit. At age 75, people go to the emergency department more frequently. For white people, it's 65 visits per hundred. For black people, it's 98 visits per hundred. And it's not being black, it's being poor, is, is what it is. So there is one visit for every in black community. There is one visit to the emergency department for every single person, 100%, 98%. So we need to work blend that into all our responses. Steve, I have one sort of overarching question, which is we've talked about sort of specific problems when we talk about boarding and we talk about emergency department utilization and the, the construction of emergency departments, I wonder your reaction to this. Is this the fundamental problem or is this a symptom of something going on throughout our healthcare system? I'm not 100% sure this is addressed as you think, but in the healthcare system, we have uh, primary care. Primary care uh, is not designed in a way to provide even rudimentary testing for the most part, right? Most most primary care practitioners do not have a blend of testing in their community. So where it, where do you go to get the testing? 
So that this is pretty basic. So you could redesign primary care and make it look like a, a, a uh, an urgent care center. Um, oddly enough, the real best model for this remedy comes from Oman. Oman, Oman has enlightened leadership, and every sixteen thousand people get a health center with testing available. 16,000, can, you can have an x-ray machine, an ultrasound machine, and a small lab, and that would, that would uh, think. So the system's way, uh, it goes way back to primary care. Uh, uh, you have a sore hand, a really sore hand, and you want to do something. It looks like an infection, but you don't know. And then, so you need an x-ray, right? You need an x-ray for a hand. Yes, doctor? <laughs> and, uh, and so that patient has to go to an emergency department before that to do it. Urgent cares have not improved boarding. So one of the things that, that I learned from um, one of the CEOs that I've spoken to, who was also an emergency room doc, he said he used to walk into his hospital through the emergency department every day on his way to work because he felt like that really gave him a sense of what was happening in his hospital. It was one department, but it touched every other department. And so it sort of gave him an overview of what was happening in his healthcare system. Yes. And I wonder if you would agree with his statement. Yes. The article that I mentioned in the New England Journal is entitled The Canary in the Mind. <laughs> that's a that's apt. Yes, it, it, it is. It's central. The, the other interesting thing, and really one of the best things about the job at the emergency department is, if you are in society, out in society, and if you are undergoing a X level of stress, whether it be pathologic, physiologic, or psychological, there is always and only one place that will absolutely see you, recognize you as a person 24 hours a day, seven days a week, Christmas, Easter, uh, whatever, whatever you want to do, uh, spring break, <laughs> any of those. You can walk in and be, get respectful attention, and, and that's it. But people know that. That's why they go. Right. The perfect example was once there was a young woman with a child in the emergency department, and she was in the waiting in the triage thing, but she never stood up. And the people she tried to register, and she shook her head. She didn't speak English, and so forth. But when it was all unraveled, she had a little infant, and she was evicted, and she had nowhere else to go. But she knew where to go. Right, and that symbolizes what I was going to say, which was. The emergency room is a reflection of what's happening in the greater society. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. In some ways. It, it, it really is. Yeah. So it makes sense, especially now that they're, well, since 2007, but even more so now, emergency rooms are beleaguered. Yes. And, and you know, for, the, for a lot of old people can't do it themselves, but their children know, their, their children know uh, where to go, where to take them, right? Mom's not looking good. Mom's this way, or dad is this way, or he fell. Um, and I should also tell you that uh, that this is not a U.S. problem. Thing. Canada has the identical problem. The same, they have the same visit rate as we do. 
in Ireland, which is this very uh, civilized society, uh, <laughs> and 95-year-old men spent three days on a, on a trolley in the emergency department before he's admitted, and the prime minister visited him in apology. <laughs> it's a small country. And, uh, the, and National Health Service totally, completely overwhelmed. They would continually tell people not to come. Uh, so it's, uh, it's uh, I, again, go back, it's demographics. Steve, thank you so much for all your insights. Ironically, I, I think we should wrap up because I have to go to the emergency room to see somebody, which um, is probably very <laughs> apt to our discussion today. But I promise I will get them out of the emergency room as fast as I'm able. But thank you for your insights on these things. And thank you for, you know, many years of thinking about this problem and these other problems that are surrounding it. We, we really appreciate your time and, uh, and thanks again for joining us. I'm glad to be here and happy to talk. Well, Simon, I have to say, what really struck me about this episode were the shocking statistics about our future needs for hospital and ER capacity. Yeah, n not only shocking statistics from right now, but this has actually been going on for quite a while. And there were people talking about this over a decade ago. And so I think one of the shocking things about the statistics is not only have they been going on for a while, but these things are continuing to worsen. And they're going to get really astronomical in the next few years. Yeah. Well, we've seen partly what can happen when things like supply chains fall apart and when pandemics come along. So we've definitely seen some of the problems. But when you think about the resources that are going to be needed going forwards for large segments of our society, <clears throat> excuse me, for the baby boomers as they come through, you know, there are some really giant needs coming our way and the closure of community hospitals are not going to help that. That's what I was thinking the whole time we were talking with him was I had just been reading about how many community hospitals are closing and wondering what can we do to keep them open? Mm -hmm. Because it seems like preserving capacity at this point is really essential. Yeah. You know, it, it always comes back to finances when you talk about these things. And we've talked about that with some of our podcast guests. I mean, yes, I think those of us who are treating patients recognize the essential part of that, but it's really hard to envisage how just doing the right thing is, uh, is going to win over the finances. Right. And in speaking with him, I couldn't help but think about all of the emergency physicians that I've been speaking with over the past six to eight weeks who we thought were under serious strain during the pandemic and are in fact saying it's really not that much different now. Yeah. We're not seeing COVID. We're not intubating people every day, but we are so strapped staffing wise and we're the safety net for every other sector of the healthcare business. Mm -hmm. We can't turn anybody away and we're really struggling. As I think about that, I think about how fascinating it is, how large a web of parts there are in the healthcare system. And when you perturb one part of it, whether that's making it difficult to get to an operating room, whether that's making it hard to get to a specialist, whether that is a financial issue or a supply chain issue, you really have incredible downstream effects on everybody. So you see people using emergency rooms in a different way now from the way they may have in the past. You see different pressures on different parts of the system. 
you see the upstream problems now being reflected in the emergency rooms. And so it's just this incredible network and web of different parts that all affect one another that I think we're seeing. And it reminds us that we can't have a discussion about any one of these pieces and think that we're going to fix the problem. We need to have bigger discussions about bigger solutions. Absolutely. And that's why we're on our fifth season. So thank you for joining us for Moral Matters. Our producer is Dave Young at Widget Studios. Our podcast coordinator is Ariel Morton. To learn more about the nonprofit Moral Injury of Healthcare, you can go to our website at fixmoralinjury.org. If you'd like to support future episodes of the podcast or any of the work we do, you can make a donation while you're there. Our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram links are in the show notes so you can continue the conversation. And you can help spread the word by sharing episodes with friends and colleagues. Plus, if you subscribe, rate, and review the show, it makes it easier for other new listeners to find us. Thanks for listening. And stay well.